Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WAB in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. That was the remix. Big news today, as you just heard from NPR, coming from the biotech company Moderna. A new vaccine appears to be 94.5% effective based on results from its clinical trials. Now, this comes, yes, a week after Pfizer announced their vaccine appears to be effective as well. Now, coming up in just a moment, we'll hear how the Morehouse School of Medicine is conducting two COVID-19 related clinical trials of their own. As a physician and as a scientist, I would say pause and say, step back, think about this. What is the best way using science and evidence to guide us? That conversation coming up with Dr. Lily Lily Immergluck in just a moment. Now, still, despite this news, the number of COVID-19 cases nationwide continues to climb, reaching record-breaking numbers. In fact, the U.S. has passed 11 million coronavirus cases just yesterday after passing 10 million cases last week. That's the fastest the U.S. has added a million new cases since the pandemic began. And this information, according to Johns Hopkins University. Now, at the time of this broadcast, as we come home to Georgia, the total number of confirmed cases here in the state right now is at 386,949. The number of hospitalizations, 33,241. And of those, 6,225 were ICU admissions. And since the state began recording deaths, well, that number now is at 8,462 since March. And as always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, the other big news, of course, as the election results are still being contested by some. Fulton County election workers finished recounting more than 500,000 ballots in the presidential race. The county says its risk-limiting audit was completed yesterday afternoon. Other counties around the state are still completing the auditing process, and they have until Wednesday evening to finish up. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger ordered the first-of-its-kind audit last week when Joe Biden was leading Donald Trump by just 14,000 votes in the state. And we should note that Joe Biden has been declared the winner. Officials expect to certify the election late next week after the audit is completed. This is Closer Look.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. February 1st. 2021, that is the scheduled date for the Morehouse College spring semester to begin for now. This week, we're checking in with some area colleges and universities about their plans for next semester. Tomorrow, we'll have Agnes Scott President Leo Cadio Zach on. But right now, every state is experiencing either an increase in new confirmed cases or hospitalizations or both. And this could once again determine how institutions of higher learning will begin the spring semester. Well, join me now. Talk me through Morehouse College, how they will proceed. President Dr. David Thomas. President Thomas, thanks for taking the time. I, I see you on the Zoom there. Are you sporting a beard, man? You got a beard. What, is that a pandemic I'm, I'm, beard? <laughs> I'm sporting a beard, and I'm praying for my fro to come back. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we weren't such had a good relationship, I would say them some long prayers, brother. But if you want to, if you want your afro to come back, you bring it on back. <laughs> 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 you know, around around the sides. Right. Okay, George Jefferson. <laughs> there you go. Hey, you know, I'm moving on up. I got you. I got you. Um, listen, let, let's go back a little bit, President Thomas, because when you reflect back to March of this year, I don't know if anyone could have imagined the U.S. now with, as I mentioned, coming into the program, 11 million confirmed cases. When we started covering this back in February, I think the, the country had 12 confirmed cases. And now you look at where we are here on November 16th. What's, what's your takeaway in all this? Um, my take on it is that we're, we're in a much worse place than we might have been. Um, if we had had uh, clear leadership from the very top of our government, uh, and if we had not politicized mm-hmm. Uh, our our response to COVID, quite frankly, uh, I can remember in July when I originally made the decision uh, that we would open and then reverse that decision to be totally remote. And part of what was influencing it was I was watching a situation where uh, our governor was suing our mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I just realized that... Um, I couldn't bring students back when the leaders of our community were arguing about how to respond to the uh, to the virus. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think we've witnessed one of the biggest failures of leadership that I've seen in my 64 years. Not only from the federal level, but here on the state level as well. You feel that way? Federal, state. Um, you know, I think within the city, uh, our mayor has done as good a job as she could, but where you don't have the state and the localities aligned, mm-hmm. uh, you get, um, you know, contradictory currents um, that prevent anybody from taking real action. So I take it you also, I'm asking, then Georgia reopened too soon then through your lens? I think Georgia reopened um, too soon um, and without a clear plan for how to reopen, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that that we could open in a staged way, constantly monitoring the science and what it was telling us about, you know, the next steps. 
President Thomas, to your knowledge, has anyone within the Morehouse College community, family, has anyone uh, died from the virus that you know of? Uh, we have not had uh, an employee stu or student uh, die. Uh, we have had an alumni die. Uh, mm -hmm. The most notable is actually Herman Cain. Mm -hmm. Yes. A Morehouse alum who uh, attended uh, one of the um, um, campaign rallies that our president had uh, unmasked. And uh, within uh, two or three weeks, he was dead and a number of other people were infected at that event. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had individuals who've had uh, members of their families pass away and we've had a very few, uh, less than five employees who've reported being uh, infected by the virus, none of whom have died and to my knowledge, none of whom have had uh, serious periods of hospitalization where they had to be put on ventilators. Mm. How has the virtual classes been going so far? And what's the feedback been like from students and, and faculty? Um, you know, we have to put it in the context of prior to um, March 21st, when we went from fewer than 10 online classes at Morehouse College to taking 307 sections of Morehouse College on line, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we think it's gone uh, fairly well. Um, and we've improved uh, this semester compared to last semester. That said, it's been very stressful for both faculty and students. Uh, we've had to deal with, you know, uh, a variety of uh, challenges with our technological infrastructure that was not designed to deliver online education en masse. Mm -hmm. Faculty have coped with that well. Our students have coped with that well. We've also had to deal with the fact that um, when we initially went online, we discovered things about our student body that I think we were less uh, aware of than uh, perhaps we should have been. Like, like um, Many of our students um, still come from uh, rural communities in the South where um, internet connectivity is limited. 60% hmm. uh, of Morehouse students are Pell eligible, which means they come from families that can pay less than $5,000 toward their education. And that means that many of them are going in back home, went back home to families where there might be one computer in the household and they had uh, a mother and or a father working remotely from home, uh, siblings uh, going to school remotely. And in some cases, I had one student write me, um, turned out he was the only person in his family with a computer. So he was sharing his computer with everybody else in the household and um, he didn't feel good about, you know, pushing his little brothers and sisters off sure. of the computer so that he could join his class on time. 
And, um, you know, one of the things that we were able to do for this semester was to partner with Microsoft and we got um, Surface tablets, uh, two-in-one computer tablets for every new student who entered Morehouse this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to deal with those kinds of problems. I had heard stories from other institutions around here where some students were trying to take their classes using their phone because they didn't have access to a laptop or any other type of digital device. Right. And, and yeah. we're talking about yeah. institutions where people probably assume that every student comes from some affluent family or what have you, but that's just not the case, President Thomas. That's that's definitely not the case in Morehouse. As I said, 60% of our students are Pell eligible. Um, mm. Let's take a listen through what the plan is for 2021. As I mentioned coming into the segment, now y'all are saying, look, February, we're going to be ready. But um, what have you all, what are the metrics that you all use to make this decision? And also we should remind folks that oh. it's usually how Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, Atlanta, how one goes, the other goes in a situation like this. Right, right. You're right. And, and, and uh, to uh, some extent, we are all going together. We will all have some residential uh, presence on our campus. We based it on a few things. One, we anticipated that around this time of year, there would be a spike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so uh, even though it's perhaps more severe than anyone could have uh, predicted, we, we, we thought there would be a spike as uh, people moved indoors. Um, So, and we think that when we come out of, by the time we get to February, we should be on the downward side of both the flu season and uh, uh, the spike in the virus. Uh, We've also developed uh, what we think is a best in class set of protocols will come back uh, in a lower density format than um, we usually are in. How many students are we talking about? We're talking about roughly 1,200 students as opposed to uh, 1,600. We've also set aside um, one entire dormitory with about 153 beds or so uh, in case we have to quarantine students. Uh, every student will be tested prior um, to coming to campus. And then um, all of our athletes will be tested three times a week if they're playing competitively. And each of our students, faculty and staff who are on campus will be tested um, uh, at least once a week and uh, likely more. And the way we'll run that testing is, uh, you know, with the epidemiological approach. So let's say we find that some part of the campus is showing up with a disproportionate number of positives. Mm -hmm. We'll isolate that dormitory or part of the campus, test everyone, quarantine, isolate. Um, And, you know, the other uh, you know, if there's a silver lining, um, the data is actually showing that uh, the, H, the, the HBCUs that did open this fall 
showed a lower incidence rate than predominantly white institutions. Uh, so there's something about our culture that we think has our students, you know, leads us to believe our students will also own this with us. Those um, students who you're allowing back on campus, these are freshmen, seniors who look to graduate in the in the later in yeah, the spring. So, yep. So the invitation will be first to freshmen so that every freshman who would like to return to be on campus will have the opportunity to be on campus in their freshman year. Uh, we'll also have our residence hall advisors, and then we will privilege um, upperclassmen, seniors primarily, mm -hmm. uh, who'd like to finish out their time here on the hilltop. And again, for those students who are in those classes, freshmen or, or transfer or, or seniors, they can opt to continue to take their classes online, correct? That's right. And, and the majority of classes will be offered online because, an, uh, you know, another step that we've taken is that we will not require any faculty member who doesn't feel safe delivering in-person instruction uh, to come to campus. Mm -hmm. So some of those students, like many colleges that, you know, have students in residence now, uh, many of our students will likely take four out of five classes uh, online, even though they're on campus. But we're looking at ways to also build community around that. So, for example, um, if you've ever spent time on Morehouse's campus, a lot of the learning takes place after the class. Mm -hmm. So we will set up places where students can come they may be online for the course with their faculty member, but they'll have the option of coming to a classroom where they're all listening to it at the same time. And the hope is that, you know, they'll do what Morehouse men have done, which is have the real discussion after the class. Mm. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Morehouse College President Dr. David Thomas, and we're talking about the institution's plans for the spring semester. Uh, how are you all planning to implement social distancing and, and safety measures? And will you require everyone to always have a mask on on campus? Yes. Um, everyone will be required to have a mask on. Um, where individuals are found to be positive after testing, uh, they'll be required uh, to, per to uh, participate in as, uh, contact tracing. Um, and um, we are already looking at, you know, how we can stagger things like uh, dining mm -hmm. uh, times so that we can create the appropriate social distancing. Well, and what about in the dorms where, you know, they're, they're sharing, you know, facilities? And I imagine your staff, your, your facility staff will be quite busy. And you have to consider their safety as well, President Thomas. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, we, we, uh, partner with Aramark around our facilities. Uh, they've developed, uh, a very thorough protocol that already with some institutions that, um, they service, uh, they've shown to be very effective. 
Um, we're also looking at how we place students in dormitories so that we lower the number of students who are using a common bathroom facility. Um, Don't some students, aren't, are they in a quad situation where you may have more than two? Are you all able, since you don't have the typical number in terms of enrollment, are you all able to at least keep the roommate situation down to no more than two? Yes. Okay. Yes. So there won't be more than two students uh, in a room. Uh, and rooms where that, that wouldn't allow for appropriate social distancing will be turned into singles. Okay. Uh, the good thing about Morehouse is a lot of the architecture um, was, was, was built in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. So the rooms are actually quite spacious because they used to put four or five brothers in one room. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have been in a quad situation with roommates. I understand. <laughs> I right, understand. Right, yeah. Right. So 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 it, it will feel like luxurious housing. <laughs> okay. The two people, you know, there'll be echo bouncing off the walls. Have you but what have you personally done? Have you walked around the campus? Have you talked to your staff? You know, are you also getting sort of bird's eye view of how all this will work. And do you have some concerns? I imagine you do. Uh, Rose, um, one of the things I've learned in this moment is that uh, I can never be satisfied that I have the right answer. Mm -hmm. All I can do is satisfy myself that based on what I know right now, I've arrived at the best answer. With and no pressure from parents or there's, there's, outside there's, influences about, hey, get these kids on campus. Um, the pressure there is our students. Uh, these young men want to be on this campus. Even when we tell them, you know, you might have to take, you know, most, maybe even all of your classes online, they still want to be on this hilltop. Well, it also means they need to adhere to the measures and, you know, don't want to yeah. pick on young folks. But, you know, I was young. I was a young person. We, we can be hard headed. <laughs> yeah. No. And, you know, it, you're absolutely right. And um, I was once a young brother and they can be the most hard headed. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, one of the things we're encouraged by is um, our student leadership has been lockstep with us and assured us that they will take responsibility for leading their community of brothers uh, to make Morehouse as safe as possible. But even if you all do that and you can't control what's happening outside of the campus, the lovely campus of Morehouse College, and if these numbers continue to increase. And you're banking on that the trend will project downward, but we're seeing the increase, not just in Georgia, but throughout the nation. If that doesn't go the way that you all want, you wouldn't. You all are ready to tell the young brothers, as you just put it, hey, we're going to have to go back to all online, guys. We're just going to have to do yeah. this. And, and, and we shared, um, I shared a letter with the community this morning. And in that letter, I say exactly that. And um, 
you know, the, 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 the evidence of our willingness to do that is clear. Um, you know, you may recall, um, at least I recall, July 1, I sent out a note saying we were having people back to campus. Mm -hmm. And 14 days later, I was sending out a note saying we're going to be totally remote. And that's all about following the science and asking the question, uh, am I confident that uh, we have the highest probability of keeping our students, our faculty, and our staff safe? And so if we get to the middle of January and, um, you know, my sense of how this will trend is wrong, we will reverse. I know that coping with the pandemic was not part of the strategic plan. You were named president back in 2017. How has this altered some of the initiatives you wanted to implement? And then there's a fiscal side to this as well. Yeah. Um, it has slowed us down significantly. Uh, you just take, for example, um, our last board meeting in October, our strategic plan was approved. Um, the plan was to have that strategic plan approved in April. Um, we've had to recalculate, you know, uh, around our economics. The hardest thing for me has been that I've had to furlough uh, and uh, actually lay off, um, uh, you know, something on the order of 56 faculty, 56 staff. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, been a significant blow to us financially. Some challenging times indeed. And then also too, President Thomas, at this time, the college is, is still fighting that, that that lawsuit regarding allegations of sexual sexual harassment by former students and to others. What can you all share about that? You have a lot going on right now, but we what can you share about the institution's final investigation that you all concluded with? Yeah, uh, what we concluded, I mean, the the case is that the college did not do all that it could do um, in response to um, the events that occurred. Mm -hmm. Our investigation, our internal investigation suggests that um, we did. Uh, that said, uh, and, and none of the bad actors, if you will, uh, continue to be employed by the college uh, or continue to be employed by the college. And as soon as um, we, I was made aware of these incidences, we took decisive action. We think that will hold up uh, in court um, the, you know, and the, the decisions that have come down have trended that way. Um, that said, um, you know, my obligation is to have every student, every faculty, every staff at Morehouse feel psychologically and physically safe. Mm -hmm. and, and we're committed to that. From but that, we, oh, go ahead, sir. Yeah, we do think that um, um, we are, you know, um, defensible uh, in resisting the demands of these cases. From that to the pandemic 
to the plight of HBCUs, which you and I have had conversations before, in assessing nearly three years as Morehouse College president, what's been the takeaway about your leadership role? Your self-assessment. Mm. You knew that was coming. Um, my self-assessment is um, uh, I... Um, I think I've satisfied uh, one commitment that I made to this community uh, when I first came and in my inaugural speech, which is um, every day, uh, as, as my father said about being a father when he said it was the hardest job he ever had because he never knew how well he was doing. And I asked him, well, what do you do? What do you do? He said, I do the very, very best I can every day. Mm. And so I think I have satisfied that. That said, uh, you know, uh, I'm behind schedule. Uh, you know, the, the conditions that I imagined inheriting that were on the ground, uh, I thought by now, you know, we would be fully through our uh, transformation of Morehouse College. Uh, I didn't anticipate, you know, COVID and the financial mm -hmm. challenges and those sorts of things. Um, but, uh, but that said as well, uh, I think we've set the college on an upward and accelerated trajectory from where it was when I walked on this campus, literally uh, three years minus uh, 60 days, mm -hmm. uh, not even 60 days, 50 days. Yeah. I, I started January 2nd. It's been quite a year, 2020, like no other. Morehouse College President Dr. David Thomas, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time and answering the questions. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you and go Maroon Tigers, huh? Hey, thank you, Rosen. I love the skull cap. It's a throwback to my day. And <laughs> now you're telling all my business. Is, is that for the Afro? Uh, crack I took at you <laughs> yeah right 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 exactly 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 so I want you to send me that skull cap so I can tell people there's a pro on <laughs> thank you so much President Thomas take care take care bye support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
Here in Atlanta, the Morehouse School of Medicine is conducting two COVID-19 related clinical trials. Now, I recently had a conversation with Dr. Lily Immergluck. She's the Associate Professor in Microbiology, Biochemistry, Immunology, and Pediatrics, and she's also the Director of the Pediatric Clinical and Translational Research Unit in their Clinical Research Center. That's a lot. And as our conversation begins, Dr. Immergluck starts talking about what science has discovered about this coronavirus since the early part of the year. So there are a few things that uh, I think we have learned from this virus. First of all, in the beginning of the pandemic, we felt like uh, the people that were affected uh, more severely are in our elderly uh, population, uh, folks with comorbidities, uh, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and one thing that's been consistent, though, is the disproportionate number of uh, communities of color that have been uh, affected, and that's that's been uh, throughout this whole time period. But what I want to say is, really, as time has marched on and we have gathered new evidence and seen more examples of people who have affected, the population has changed. Mm-hmm. Children are affected. Uh, young adults. I, I walk around in the streets of Atlanta, and I sometimes... I want to take a microphone and shout to them and say, hey, you know what? Actually, this age group that I see in the bars and in restaurants, Mm -hmm. they are being affected. The other issue is uh, what we call long COVID symptoms. Uh, We're starting to see that the impact of having COVID-19 infections can be uh, uh, longer than just getting over the acute infection. And what that means, we're not sure because we are still in this pandemic. So we're Mm -hmm. gathering uh, the data as it is coming out. We're uh, keeping an eye on what's the best way to manage each of the conditions that come up. And and that's really challenging uh, because it causes people to pause and think about why why does the science seem like it's changing? It's not so Mm -hmm. much the science is changing it's more that we're learning about this we're learning about this novel coronavirus so folks like you scientists you all are still finding out how the body reacts to this virus that's that's that what you're saying yes yes and all of us are different you know we're not the same uh composition in terms of our immunogenic response uh to pathogens our, our germs uh, we're not the same in our ability to handle uh, not just the, from an immune side, but just from our physical and mental uh, aspects of uh, dealing with an infection. I'm curious, Dr. Emma Gluck, and maybe some of our listeners are too, are you all reaching out to other scientists around the world and see what they're coming up with, what they're noticing? I imagine there is a lot of communication Yes, Um, and it's not even uh, bound by uh, being in the United States. It's international. Mm -hmm. This is a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I've been impressed uh, with how uh, quickly we share information, uh, how we are collaborating uh, across continents um, and uh, making sure that taking that mindset of it's like all hands on deck, we we all want to get out of this. And how do we best do that? Let's talk about the two COVID-19 vaccine trials. First of all, is there a difference between the two? So the two 
uh, trials that are happening. Uh, so one is that I'm overseeing, which is um, tied to the COVID vaccine trials. Uh, and you have seen that uh, it's part of the U.S. COVID Prevention Network. Mm -hmm. And there are more than hundreds of sites, both nationally and internationally, that are involved in this. Uh, and it's a unprecedented collaboration between uh, academia, uh, pharmaceutical industry, uh, the federal government to try to uh, develop uh, the most effective uh, vaccine uh, for the general public. The other is tied to testing. Um, we are part of a uh, the HBCUs, uh, the four medical schools, to try to do mm -hmm. testing, COVID testing for all of the HBCUs across uh, the country. Um, so, you know, there's some other COVID-related studies that we're also doing. Uh, but those are the primary or like those are the major ones. The voice you hear is Dr. Lily Emmergluck from the Morehouse School of Medicine. And we're discussing the two COVID-19 clinical trials currently being conducted at the medical institution. Let's talk about the phases of a vaccine trial, Dr. Emmergluck. It can be very complex. But what phase are you all in? So for the COVID vaccine clinical trial that we're about to start, it's called a phase three. Um, and if you'll bear with me, I'm just going to kind of give some um, background sure. on the different phases, because I think it's important for uh, the audience and uh, the public to know, um, because I, I know there's a, a lot of concern. Uh, and, you know, in general, as a, honestly, as a pediatrician, the whole vaccine hesitancy, you know, is a topic that I'm not unfamiliar with because... Mm -hmm. Uh, of uh, the childhood vaccines that are recommended in, in the U.S. and how to address some of those. But tied to clinical trials, all of these vaccines are, they started in clinical trials. And the, the starting point actually is what we call preclinical. Mm -hmm. So preclinical is where we look at different uh, non-human models to see, you know, what might be uh, a, a good uh vaccine candidate to put forward and conduct human research. And that made to take years. Uh, so that's kind of like behind the scenes. It doesn't ever make the, the front pages of their news. And then we move into clinical phase one trials. And in that phase, we are looking at like, what is the best dosing that gives us the best safety profile that we want? Um, so usually they we select healthy volunteers mm -hmm. uh, to participate in those. And usually those are um, typically less than 100 folks that get involved in that uh, type of study. You said the best dosing, is this the best dosing of a drug with, that might present the fewest side effects? And give us the, uh, in a vaccine, give us the immunogenic response that we would expect or would want to protect us if we were to encounter the real germ. Mm. Then what we move on to, if it passes all those kind of uh, benchmarks as far as being satisfactory, so now we've like narrowed down like, okay, we think this dosing works. We go into phase two. Phase two, again, looks, focuses in on the um, more about the safety and not just the safety, but just like, you know, are you going to get a fever? Are you going to get, you know, uh, any of the uh, things that we might expect? as if you encountered, you know, something that your immune, uh, your immune system is going to respond to. And it's a little bit larger. So again, looking at mostly healthy folks uh, to participate in these studies. 
once it gets into that, and those are usually like around a thousand, let's just say. Wow. Once we kind of move forward into the phase three. Now, one of the things about uh, the phase three studies that are going through the U.S. COVID Prevention Network, and this is part of why it's on this Operation Warp Speed that people make reference to and mm -hmm. accelerate is because we are getting hundreds of sites involved in this to get many more times of what uh, volunteers to participate. Whereas if we were not in a pandemic and we were under usual circumstances, uh, a phase three trial might not include 30,000 or 45,000 or 60,000 mm -hmm. folks. Uh, we want to really ramp it up as quickly as possible, but using still the same uh, uh, safeguards, uh, guidelines that uh, we traditionally do uh, under routine circumstances. Mm -hmm. So that's phase three. Uh, and then there's also phase four. But anyway, the, we're, we are going to be involved in these phase three trials so that we can get the numbers of uh, folks involved and understand whether or not three things. My, mainly one is, did we generate a immunogenic response? Mm -hmm. Do we generate the uh, level of protection from each of us that we think that if we encountered the real deal, we would not get disease? Number two. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, number two is looking at, again, uh, the safety guideline, safety um, aspect. What we saw in phase one and phase two, are we seeing the same thing? And there's a lot of attention paid on this. Uh, uh, we are monitoring this all the time with each participant, okay, for each of the vaccine sponsors. And the last is like durability, mm. you know, can we say that, uh, you know, not knowing, and we're learning about this virus as we go, can we say that's a lasting immunity? So if the strains change or, you know, what's happening down the road and that, piece is partly why we ask each participant to be in the study for up to two years because we want to make sure that the antibody response and if they encounter uh, SARS-CoV-2 that they will remain protected. It's interesting because each year the flu vaccine is different and so I imagine someone listening saying well is this going to be the same for the COVID vaccine? Would it change? Yeah, that's a good point. And let me just, can I make my little plug about flu vaccine? I think it's really important that we get the flu vaccination. Uh, if uh, you don't traditionally get it every year for whatever reason, I would ask people to pause and think about getting it this year. We are already seeing uh, influenza cases come up uh, in different states. And my worry as a, a primary care physician and also infectious disease specialist is that we're going to see some amplification of COVID-19 infection if we don't get on top of the flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. When I look at Georgia and I saw that uh, over 60% of African-Americans in this state do not get the annually uh, flu vaccines, I am just trying to ring that fire bell as loudly and as often as I can. Um, and we are part of a statewide coalition to try to address health disparities. And this is one of the aspects of that is us running around in uh, Morehouse has a research mobile unit 
running around trying to figure out ways to uh, provide influenza vaccine at no cost to uh, pe people that uh, are able to um, come and come to the clinics that were on, on wheels. Uh, and Dr. McGluck, look, you are more than a scientist. You see patients. So you are at the intersection of not only working in the labs, but seeing people face to face. Uh, you of all folks know the importance of how this vaccine, why this vaccine should include so many diverse populations. Yes. Um, so one of the reasons I came to Morehouse School of Medicine uh, more than 15 years ago uh, is partly because I believed in the uh, mission of Morehouse School of Medicine. It, it is it's a small enough institution that every aspect of what we do focuses on that social mission and commitment. And I'll give you good examples of this in having done uh, clinical research within uh, our institution for the last 15 years. We have a community advisory board. Uh, we actively identify people in our communities they're not necessarily physicians, they're not necessarily scientists. They are representative of their, their own communities. And we involve them at every step of the process that's involved in clinical research. I'm talking from design of the clinical study. I'm talking about evaluating and, uh, uh, information that we hear, hear back from our participants, uh, analysis of the data, what do we do if, as far as you know, going back and talking and sharing the information? All of those things are essential mm -hmm. to what each research project that's conducted at Morehouse School of Medicine. So for this vaccine trial, we so, so, so know about the challenges that many communities of color. And also, I mean, it's just been ex ex accentuated by the fact that all the, the political climate mm -hmm. that is used, I, I feel like it's used the vaccine uh, trials as a way to promote their own political message. And I, as a physician and as a scientist, I would say pause and say, step back, think about this. Mm -hmm. What is the best way using science and evidence to guide us as far as what to do for each of us to get us out of this pandemic? And how do we talk to our communities about that? Mm -hmm. How do we hear and listen to them and say, what, what is it that you're worried about and how can we address that? Um, I, I, I applaud, our, our Dean President uh, has done uh, a yeoman's job at trying to reach out and talk to as many communities and get on uh, many different forums to try to promote uh, this messaging and wanting mm -hmm. to make sure all communities of color hear this. We recently had um, kind of like uh, education of and training of our vaccine trial team. And I printed out that pledge. And I have this pledge posted up on my, uh, on my desktop. Because uh, I look at it every day because I, I want to make sure that it, everybody that's involved in this clinical vaccine trial thinks about this, attends to it, if they have questions about it, they that needs to be raised um so that we it's a constant communication and dialogue um so th that's some of the ways that i i hope that answered your question yeah you did uh, and you know dr McGluck, when you talked about 
look, it can take years for a vaccine to go from discovery and development to even FDA mm-hmm. approval. My question for you is, if the goal is to distribute a vaccine next year, what, as a scientist, what are those concerns or what is maybe even the top concern that you have as a scientist to make sure that this vaccine is, one, will be effective, and two, that because it is on a, people may not like this term, fast track, but because of the complexity of the, of this virus, we know why, if the goal is to distribute it next year? Well, I worry about uh, how we can determine who's going to get the vaccine in what order because of just uh, having um, the actual doses available for our entire population. I heard people were worried that people won't take the vaccine. I'm, um, you know, I'm more worried about like supply. Do we have enough? You know, um, I guess because I'm an optimist and I'm a pro-vaccine person. Um, I worry about also, you know, we don't know for sure the durability of this vaccine. Uh, That element, you know, um, we're caught in a difficult situation in the sense that we, once we know that the safety profile and the immunogenic profile is going to protect us, at the short term, I worry a little bit that as we find out information in terms of long-term protection, what that means, um, balanced with, you know, number of doses, you know. Um, so back to one of your questions earlier was, you know, in reference to the flu vaccine and how we have to formulate a uh, flu vaccine that uh, we believe will target the strains that are circulating in our communities every year, I see that, you know, maybe that's a potential that would happen with SARS-CoV-2. We just don't know at this point. Um, But to me, it's about making sure people um, who are participating in these vaccine trials stick with the whole you know, the the whole duration, because that information is going to help us understand about that durability of the immunogenic response um, that we we generate in response to the vaccine. But I want to talk about then the importance of having, and this is what Pfizer had released in their statement about uh, the vaccine, that the clinical trials were among a diverse population. I think it's so important. Um, And I'll tell you, the main reason is if you look at the spectrum of who's affected by this uh, infection by SARS-CoV-2. So there's a wide variety of different types of clinical uh, manifestations of having a COVID-19 infection. And so if you want to say, does this vaccine uh, do a good job at protecting us? Well, it ought to include people that uh, we think would be most uh, affected by disease. And so that crosses uh, age, that crosses race, ethnicities, that crosses cultural aspects. Uh, you know, you know, our, our physical uh, well-being is not just uh, one-dimensional, right? It's affected by what we eat, uh, what kind of environment we're working in. All of those things impact our immune system. And how are we are able to uh, uh, fight infection and disease? I was recently on a um, 
black uh, uh, radio talk show and what and more important than my conversation or what I added to that uh, was the gentleman who recovered from COVID-19. And he came and he said that in 10 seconds, he made a decision that potentially could have, it affected his life. Mm. In 10 seconds, he made a decision not to wear a face mask to go into a situation because he left it in his car and he didn't want to walk back to his car. Mm. And he ended up being in the ICU intubated and he worried that he wouldn't see his teen son ever again because they were limiting the, the visitors. The reason I share that is because he said to this audience, he said, you know, I made it through. And I think part of that is because I'm in good shape. I'm, I mean, he, I don't know his, his exact age, but he wasn't, he wasn't elderly. He was, younger than me um but he he said i you know i watch what i eat i you know i watch uh how i take care of my body and i think that's what helped me survive but that being said he had the respiratory the whole spectrum of being near death's door uh from this infection and yet we say well up to 40 percent of us might have asymptomatic infection mm. well the, the issue is we don't know who's going to have asymptomatic and who's not. And so goes full circle to say, if we want to have a vaccine that really works and we say it's really effective, then it should represent, it should be based on evidence that says we looked at all these different types of people by age, by race, by uh, comorbid conditions. Dr. Lily Immergluck, Associate Professor of Microbiology, Biochemistry, Immunology, and Pediatrics, and also the Director of the Pediatric Clinical and Translational Research Unit in the Clinical Research Center at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Immergluck, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for really breaking this down for our listeners. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer for today, Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look or wherever you subscribe to those favorite podcasts, Closer Look should be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Don't worry, fresh air is coming up. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.